Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Naima Harris, Assistant Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and Director of the Applied Wildlife Ecology Lab at the University of Michigan. Dr. Harris is the co-author of a recent study showing how communities of lions are distributed across national parks and hunting concessions in West Africa. We'll talk about how these different environments affect their patterns of movement and how those findings can inform conservation policy. We'll also talk about the controversial and fascinating topic of trophy hunting. Stay with us. All right, Professor Naima Harris from the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk. Yeah, me too. So Naima, we're going to talk today about your work on wildlife, in particular on lions in West Africa. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues and for you in particular on big cats. So what led you into this field? So this is like one of my favorite stories. <laughs> it's my transformative uh, experience. So when I was a freshman in high school, I worked at the Philadelphia Zoo as my first job. And a part of the program that they had allowed youth participants to go on a safari in Africa. Whoa. And so I participated in, in the program and on this safari as a freshman. I wasn't supposed to go as a freshman, but we'll leave that detail out. So I went on safari in Kenya for two weeks. And we saw, of course, lots of wildlife, everything that I imagined, everything that I was seeing on television. And we did a night safari, um, a night game drive, and we watched lions. And the lions were hunting. They were teaching their young how to hunt. They eventually killed the gazelle. The gazelle was pregnant. They ripped out baby gazelle. And so literally, this is National Geographic. I'm snapping pictures. There's bloody mouths. You hear all these sounds. You feel all this energy. People are crying and sad. And I was like, okay, whatever this is called right here, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And I didn't know the name for it. um, But that set the tone in me appreciating the natural world and recognizing that I wanted to contribute to the conservation and the management and the persistence of those kinds of interactions. Wildlife, carnivores in their natural setting, um, that was my transformative experience. And so that set the tone for my career trajectory. Wow, that is such a great story. That is amazing. It is. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. So I want to ask you more questions about your safari experience, but that'll have to wait until after (laughs) we we finish. So, Let's talk a little bit uh, now about your work. And one of the things that I learned about your work as I was doing some background research for today's conversation is that you have all these cool approaches uh, that you use to try to understand the geography of different uh, ecological communities um, here in Michigan, uh, in West Africa, and all sorts of other places. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the methods and techniques that you use and your colleagues use to try to understand how those communities are distributed across space and then how they move over time. Yeah, so that ends up being um, what would seem like a very simple question, but we really need to know where animals are, where the processes that we're interested in studying, where they exist across the globe. And so you have to survey. And so there's different survey techniques that people use. One of the common um, 
kind of categories of surveys are called non-invasive techniques. So that means that I don't have to necessarily trap something or put a collar on something. Instead, I can use alternative methods. Um, so sometimes it's poop or scat or feces, whatever your favorite word is. Mm -hmm. um, and also we use a lot of camera traps. Um, there's also the inclusion of um, drones now for monitoring wildlife movement and habitat change and environmental conditions, all of which are considered non-invasive. And so commonly in the research that we're using, we use a lot of camera traps where we're putting remotely triggered cameras on trees or posts so that when an animal or a person walks by, um, we get this image. We get this lens into nature that we often don't get to observe ourselves. And then we also collect a lot of poop. Um, and so the poop gives us information about the health of the organism. It gives us information about the diet. It also gives us information about hormone levels, parasites, um, lots of information that we can learn about the actual ecology and the behavior of the wildlife that we're studying using those techniques. That's, that's great. And, you know, many of the people that we have on the, on the show are uh, policy people and researchers who spend most of their time in offices and buildings and, and hearing about um, all this fieldwork makes me somewhat jealous. Um, and so it makes me wonder, during your typical year, and I, obviously 2020 is not a typical year, but during a typical year, how much time are you out in the field and how much time are you back in Ann Arbor? Honestly, not enough. Um, I didn't become a wildlife biologist because I want to be inside or behind <laughs> my desk or uh, or giving a lecture necessarily, right? The, the environment, the classroom, the learning space is outside. We need to be observing. We need to be um, inspired by the natural world. And so that ends up being a really important in, um, component of my job and that I do get to travel literally all over the world um, to study animals in their natural setting. So right now, um, and you're right that 2020 was not a typical year. I actually got more time in the field because I was I was stuck in the field because of travel restrictions oh, wow. um, than I had anticipated. But usually in the West Africa system, I spent about four months. This year I spent about six months. So I try to do about half and half of field time and kind of classroom or teaching or lecturing or analysis and writing, balancing that half and half. Mm -hmm. Great. That's interesting. And um, well, I'm interested also to ask you about your extended stay in West Africa. Maybe we'll get to that uh, during our conversation. Um, but let's talk now about some of the work that you've done in West Africa over the last several years. Um, I came across a study that you published uh, with co-authors recently about the distribution of lions in West Africa uh, across national parks and hunting concessions. Can you start off by giving us a, a basic understanding of the current lay of the land of lions in West Africa and, and why you were interested in investigating this particular topic? Yeah, so um, of course lions are this charismatic megafauna. And going back to my, my first experience with lions as a high school um, student, I've always been intrigued. And so now fast forward 20 years later, finally getting to study them um, on a research project. But West Africa lions end up being particularly important. Um, so unlike other populations in Africa, they are classified as critically endangered. So um, even more um, threats, even more and greater concerns around their persistence in nature. And so that attracted me into West Africa. Um, even though, again, they're in other parts of the continent of Africa, West Africa ends up being a really, really special place 
And there's not a lot of work happening there. There's not enough work happening there. There's not enough attention. And so in building my own research project, I wanted to make sure that I was working in geographies and partnering with communities and collaborating with governments to ensure that the work that I do can lead to action, right? That I can do science, that I can deliver research that has conservation and management implications. So West Africa um, allows for that kind of career aspiration and those goals to my research to be um, realized. And so, and specifically looking at the West Africa lion, they are in a number of different protected areas across the region. And some of those protected areas vary depending on the management type. So they are occurring mm -hmm. in national parks um, that are thought to have stricter kind of regulations around human use and human pressures, but they're also current and present throughout hunting concessions. So that in itself represents a very distinct dichotomy in terms of the conditions and the potential threats that these species could be exposed to. And so one of the things that we were interested in, and based on collaboration and conversation, us going into the region, us developing partnerships and relationships to understand, well, what are some of the research needs? Um, and what are the ways that we can contribute to providing answers to some of the questions that people want to know in order, again, to make decisions? And so one of the questions came up around space use and around the distribution of lions across these management zones. Mm -hmm. um, and so that wasn't initially my uh, original interest into going into the system, um, but we wanted to make sure that, yes, we are delivering, again, science that people can use. And so we made some adjustments and designed a project to ensure that we could deliver some of those um, key pieces of information that was needed. And again, going back to those methods that we use, we had to decide, do we want to go into the system and just start trapping and collaring and trying to track the movement of individuals, or do we want to take a different approach? And so given that the scale that we needed to survey in terms of hunting concessions and national parks, um, again, because this the lion is critically endangered. We knew the densities would be really low. So going in and trying to trap initially, probably not a good idea either. So we decided to start with a very huge systematic camera survey where we deployed over 200 cameras throughout um, this protected area complex in West Africa in order to look at the distribution, how West African lions were using hunting concessions versus national parks. That's so interesting. And I want to ask you about what you found. But first, when you say West Africa, can you give us a sense of like which countries we're talking about or portions of countries? The place that I am working is in the largest protected area complex in West Africa. It is called the WAP complex, and it spans Burkina Faso, Niger, and Benin. Um, I also mentioned that we have a Another project that we are we have launched this year in Senegal, another country in West Africa that has lions. Great. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. So now let's talk a little bit about what you found in this particular study. I mean, as someone who knows nothing about <laughs> lions, I wouldn't even say next to nothing. I know nothing about them. Um, my my sort of presumption would be that they might avoid hunting concessions and spend more time in national parks because they're presumably at less risk in national parks. Um, but is that what you ended up finding? So let me correct you. I'm sure you know lots about lions. You know that they live in groups. You know that the males have manes. You know some things about lions. Okay, but, I get you. <laughs> but to answer your question, yes, that was the assumption going into the protected areas that we thought that the 
amount of space use and their behavior and the distribution of resources, the availability of prey and their food would be higher in the national parks. And so, yes, they would spend more time in the national parks. Um, interestingly, what we found was first, we wanted to depict the different kinds of human activities that were present in the hunting concessions in the national parks. And so we categorized people on the cameras. And again, that was not we didn't go into the study system saying, hey, we wanna survey people and see what they're doing in, in these places, no. But they end up being a kind of bycatch, if you will, in that people are using these spaces and animals are using these spaces. So they're coexisting or trying to coexist in these shared landscapes that end up being really resourceful, both for humans and, and supporting livelihoods, but also for wildlife. And so we wanted to first depict the activities that people um, were exploiting or utilizing uh, resources inside of the national parks. Um, and then we could start to understand, okay, what does the distribution of pressure or human activity look like? Is it the same across these management types? Um, and then how does that affect the wildlife and specifically the African lion? So the first thing that we found is that we were expecting to document lots of poaching and illegal activity. Um, and we certainly documented that, but that was not the highest threat. Um, the most common human activity had to do with livestock. And so, mm people grazing and moving cattle through the national parks. So livestock and herders and herdsmen, um, that was the dominant human activity that we documented on the cameras inside of the national parks. Now we did document that um, there was lots of human activity in the hunting concessions. That is a commercial management, you know, for economic, for tourism, et cetera. And so, yes, we certainly documented lots of human activity inside of the hunting concessions, but we found that because the prey distribution, given that prey is that's what's driving how animals and how carnivores and how lions specifically are using space, right? You got to follow your food. Mm -hmm. And so given that, um, because the prey availability was comparable in both the national park and the hunting concessions, we actually found that the space use was comparable. Um, between the hunting concessions and the national parks. So even though we went in with the idea of expecting that the national parks would um, support a larger, um, perhaps lion population or greater diversity of prey or greater diversity of wildlife um, and then support a greater use of the park by the lions, that's not what we found. We found that the space use was comparable in the hunting concessions and the national parks. That's so interesting. And, and you think that was predominantly driven by just the availability of prey? Yeah, we did a lots of fancy modeling, of course. And so we <laughs> put different kinds of uh, variables into these models. We looked at human pressure. We looked at um, the distribution and the density of roads. We looked at distance to edges. We looked at the size. We looked at the competitor community. We looked at the prey community. We put all these different variables into this model in order for us to explain space use. Um, and so this work was led by a graduate student that's in my lab. And so she was awesome in putting this model together. And the model results um, highlighted the importance of prey availability driving the space use patterns for lions. Got it. Super interesting. So 
you mentioned earlier that you uh, sort of specifically designed this work to be relevant uh, to policymakers uh, to inform conservation decisions. And so what are some of the implications that you're able to draw from this work about how governments can effectively manage their parks to support conservation or any other relevant takeaways in that area? Yeah, so it was really interesting in that, again, as we were designing this work, I didn't come in as this like foreign researcher saying, hey, this is what I want to do in your place. Um, it was really us having a conversation like these are my skills these are my interests this is my background what are the needs how do we come together what does mm -hmm. what does a collaboration look like and so after them um, several individuals um, national park managers government officials explaining some of the interests and some of their needs and designing this project they are contributors, right? They are collaborators. They are co-authors on the research. They are setting the agenda for the scholarship. And so throughout the entire process, from conceptualizing the research to implementing us going out into the field and collecting the data together, um, them looking at the images and putting the images in context. Again, I mentioned that we categorized human activities. Well, that's not my community, right? Mm -hmm. And so I may look at the image and say, yep, that looks like a bad guy to me. <laughs> and they're like, no, actually, you know, they're just going to get some ball bob fruit, right? Like, and so right. this, this, this um, kind of local knowledge and community context ends up being really important to how we're even interpreting the data that we get out of these places. And so working with them throughout the entire process, now we have the results, now we have the published papers, now the conversations are, okay, so given what we've learned from this research, what are the levers that we can change? All right, we know that prey availability is really important. We know that prey availability is linked to water management. Okay, great, let's think about how we do a better job managing the water resources inside of the national park. Okay, we learned that the human activity is really dominated by this livestock pressure and grazers and herdsmen moving cattle through the park. Okay, let's think about maybe is there a corridor that we need to create? Maybe is there different kind of permitting? Is there different kind of designated zones that, that facilitate the movement in a less disruptive way? Those are now the conversations that can be had and the interventions um, that can be made in order to, again, promote this kind of coexistence between the human demands and again supporting livelihoods from the benefits that we get from nature as well as supporting the conservation of some critically endangered species like the African lion. Yeah that all makes sense super interesting and it, it'll be really interesting to watch how uh, well I'm sure for you to, to watch how it plays out on the ground and what kind of strategies are implemented to sort of address these challenges that you've helped identify. Yeah, seeing our work actually translate into now new iterations of their management plans of the national parks, that certainly makes you feel um, really relevant and, and that the work that you're doing matters, even though it takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears sometimes go into the work, but to know that um, it is benefiting and contributing and meeting the goals, um, that's really rewarding. That's great. So one related but you know distinct topic that I wanted to ask you about is um, related to a really controversial uh, topic which is trophy hunting yep. um, many of us have probably seen images online of people who have been on these trips where they track and maybe hunt or kill a lion or another large uh, animal another uh, charismatic megafauna mm -hmm. um, which is if I start a band in the future I'm definitely calling it charismatic <laughs> megafauna um, but but seriously you know these trips can 
at least in theory, support local economies and raise revenue that can be used for conservation efforts. But they're also really clearly, uh, you know, significant ethical concerns here. Um, as again, as someone who hasn't thought deeply about these issues, I'm sure you have. So I'm just curious what your view is on the benefits uh, and drawbacks of trophy hunting as it actually exists in the real world. Yeah, so that ends up being a really controversial topic, right? And it's controversial for a lot of reasons. Um, one aspect has to do with, okay, this is a resource that some people view, right? Wildlife can be viewed as a resource. Mm -hmm. Biodiversity can be viewed as a resource. And so um, are we consumptively or, or non-consumptively valuing and, and using this resource? And so depending on which camp you're on, you're going to have very um, kind of adamant and visceral <laughs> opinions around trophy hunting. And so you're right in that there could be, there can be benefits um, in terms of the economic revenue that gets generated. Um, but then once it's generated, how is it distributed, right? And right. so then that's where a lot of tensions arise in that, okay, you put this dollar amount on this species that perhaps some people view should never have a dollar amount. How much is something worth? Um, and, and then I don't get to reap the benefits if I'm a community member living in that environment, right? That, that this resource got extracted and I didn't reap any benefits. And so that creates tension between local communities and uh, foreign visitors or, or hunters or politicians and government officials, right? Tensions arise from that perspective. Um, I have personal opinions about trophy hunting and I have um, scientific opinions about trophy hunting, um, mm -hmm. some of which are kind of uh, integrated and, and merged together. I would say first and foremost that one of the dangers around trophy hunting is us actually not setting the proper quotas, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to remove individuals out of the population, this is we, me wearing my biologist hat, right? If you're going to remove individuals from the population, how many should we remove so that it does not harm or change the trajectory of that population in terms of making it even more endangered or populations declining. And so that's the first question. Do we actually have the scientific data and the survey? Have we surveyed these population to know, okay, we could remove these many individuals knowing that individuals are going to be removed for natural causes as well. If we add additional mortality on top of that, does that cause the population to decline? Mm -hmm. If we're answering those questions, and so we're going through the due diligence of scientifically investigating to know how many we should remove, um, then we could argue that trophy hunting won't have a detrimental effect on the populations. And so that's where my concern comes in, is that are we setting quotas so that the removal of individuals does not harm the population trajectory. And so if we do that science, if we do that research and we say, yep, all right, we can we can take five out or we can take 20 out. Um, as long as we've done that science to justify our decision making, um, I think that that part is really important. And sometimes that's not happening. Most of the time, I would argue that's probably not happening. Interesting. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is whether um, you think, you know, to what extent is that playing out in the real world? And it sounds like, yeah, not not as much as it probably should. Yeah, we need to be doing more more science, more research um, in order to help make better decisions around trophy hunting um, and which individuals get removed from the population. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, we don't have enough time to talk about trophy hunting in much more detail, but I just want to 
you know, acknowledge how interesting and complex an issue is, and, and maybe we can find another time to talk about it in greater depth, uh, or we can do another show uh, where we spend some more time on it. Sounds good. So uh, last question before we go to our top of the stack closing segment um, is about uh, an event that you helped organize in mid-September called Black Mammologists Week. Um, I looked on the website of the event and it had these really wonderful illustrations. It sounds like there were all sorts of great talks that were going to be going on, sharing information and encouraging you know, young people to get involved in this field. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the event and what it sought to accomplish? Yeah, so there's been um, there's been kind of a, a movement, I would say, largely that's happening in the black community intersecting with environmentalism or environmental issues um, from Black Birders Week. Um, there's black in microbiology, um, black mammologists, a number of events um, that's meant to, number one, showcase that um, black people are here, that we are in these spaces, that we are contributing and enjoying the natural world. We are studying the natural world. Um, and so it's really an opportunity, it really was an opportunity to showcase uh, black mammologists, our love and our passion for the natural world that oftentimes uh, people are not seeing us. They don't see us in these spaces. And mm -hmm. so it perpetuates a narrative that either we don't belong or we don't care or this isn't for us. Um, and that's not true. And that's not a narrative that we want to promote. And so it was an opportunity to incite a an enthusiasm um, for representation that we are again in this space and we are contributing. Um, it was also an opportunity to highlight the scholarship in terms of the different research, the different activities that are happening around mammals and our relationship to mammals, um, whether we are hunting and harvesting them. Um, so we had a, a forage Friday um, where we <laughs> highlighted, um, we had a threatened Thursday where we highlighted threatened mammals. We had techniques Tuesday where we talked about the methods used in studying mammals. So it was really a, a platform that we wanted to organize ourselves and activate an energy. Um, and again, showcase that we are in this space to highlight the representation. Yes, of course, to inspire the next generation, um, but also to inform our colleagues and to reiterate that this is a shared space, um, whether you like it or not, um, we, are, we are here and we are staying. Great. Um that's super interesting. And um, and there's a website, of course, that people can check out and hopefully, do you think this event will carry on in the future? It'll be an annual type of thing? Yeah, we actually, we, we've set up a scholarship. Um, and so you can go to that Black Mammologist website, uh, blackmammologist.com. Um, and people can contribute to a scholarship fund where we are supporting black ecologists um, supporting students or community leaders that are involved in mammalogy. Um, this is an event that we are expecting to have annually. Um, this is an opportunity for us to strengthen the community among black ecologists and black mammologists, um, but also facilitates different kinds of conversations. And so there's lots of different kind of spinoffs. There's lots of different opportunities with us participating in different workshops or showcases, um, again, to highlight and elevate the contributions that black mammologists are making across the globe. Yeah, great. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I hope people will, um, will check it out. 
So let's close it out now uh, by asking you the same question that we ask all of our guests. So asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard recently that is related to the environment, even if tangentially, uh, that you think is really interesting. Uh, and I will start with a very brief recommendation on this topic of trophy hunting that we really just touched on. Uh, it's an article that I read in The Conversation uh, by a woman named Melanie Flynn, who's a lecturer in criminology, uh, interestingly, at the University of Huddersfield in the UK. Uh, the piece is called uh, Trophy Hunting, Can It Really Be Justified by Conservation Benefits? Hmm. Um, and, you know, like other arguments that I've read in this sphere, I, d I don't have a good, like, I don't have a strong view uh, where I come down, but it's fascinating to learn more about the topic and some of its complexities. Um, but now I'll turn it over to you, Naima, um, and uh, ask you to tell us what's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. Yeah, I'm excited, actually. Um, there's a new book that I want to read. It's called A Terrible Thing to Waste, and it's mm. written by Harriet Washington, and it's about environmental racism, and it focuses on environmental toxins and kind of the disproportionate effect that communities of color or marginalized communities uh, being exposed to that affects their health, that affects their um, intellect and IQ, so this relationship between the environment and uh, communities of color and intellect, this whole intersection. So really excited to read that. Again, A Terrible Thing to Waste by Harriet Washington. Hmm. That sounds really interesting. Um, well, we will put links to that book and also to the article that I mentioned on uh, the webpage in the show notes so people can easily access them. And we'll put up a link, of course, uh, name it to your website and to the Black Mammalogist Week website so people can check those out at their convenience. Great. Um, so once again, Naima Harris from the University of Michigan, thank you so much for coming on Resources Radio and telling us about your work uh, tracking mammals and learning about mammals and informing policy decisions. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.